Welcome back, Captain John, to the Yacht Rock Podcast, Out of the Main. Out of the Main. We are back. We are back. And welcome and thank you to all of our syndicators who are picking the program up yes. here and there across the uh, internet waves. Yeah. You know what? Um, now that we're kind of into season two a, a little bit, I just had, to, I had a couple of observations. I had three things that I carried over from what we've learned so far. Okay. Are they all appropriate to be on air? Yes. So far. <laughs> One, going back to our one of our early episodes where we were started going through the different um, featured players on different instruments, I regret that at the time I had no idea who Ernie Watts was. Really? Which is shameful. Yes. Shame on you. I knew who John Robinson was, but I had no idea to what level he was in on this, mm-hmm. you know? So... Um, those are two regrets, but maybe not a regret because now we've you know learned something along the way. Yeah. The third one is a bigger regret. I've noticed that a large number of my nautical puns are pirate based, and that's probably you know <laughs> probably not good. Well, let me kick you off with a pirate joke. Okay. Then. Go What's ahead. a pirate's favorite letter? R. No, you think it's R, but it's really the C. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. Anywho. Okay. So, a lot of editing to do this week. Yes. I can tell. Well, let's get back on topic, okay. as if we ever were, which you kind of were when you mentioned Ernie Watts and you started to mention some of the session players, yeah. which the defining characteristic in a lot of ways of this genre is the featured session player, of which today's focus feature is very central, because as we did with Asia, we're going to do an album focus today, and we're going to focus on one of Toto's records, but Toto, their musicians are kind of the linchpins of all of this, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. The um, the number of records that Jeff Percaro played on and Steve Lukather are just too numerous to even to know. But often, you know, we forget how much David Page did. Mm-hmm. And even both bass players, uh, David Hungate, Mike Percaro, Steve Percaro, even when he wasn't playing as a synthesizer programmer because those things were so complex back then. I mean, these guys are around all of that stuff. Yep, absolutely. And together... Some of those, all of those, formed the band Toto. They did. And we went through their catalog and tried to identify, I don't know, maybe the pinnacle of their yachtiness or certainly one of their most iconic records. And today we're going to focus on the album Toto 4. Toto 4, the last album that with their uh, original or classic lineup. The next album, uh, Bobby Kimball was no longer with them on vocals. Uh, supposedly there was a lot of pressure that they had going into this record. I mean, they had a couple of hits early, and then their third album kind of kind of flopped. So there was a lot of pressure for them to get this figured out, though the label still did give them a big budget. Um, reports were that they um, had a big enough budget that they were using as many as three 24-track decks at one time, linked wow. together with a time code thing. And, you know, so you had to have a big studio, a lot of money to do that. Um, so the album did, obviously we know it did really well, went three times platinum in the U.S., uh, went to number four on the album charts, which, which is uh, a little lower than I even expected once I looked it up. But um, here's the funny part. Funny haha or funny? P- funny just... peculiar. Well, okay. it's kind of funny haha. Uh, the Wisdom of Rolling Stone. They gave it two stars. Yes. But I can go you one further because we've uh, already talked about reviewers and how reviewers can often be either... Um, inflecting the with their own expectations on something or they use their reviews as opportunities to show everybody what a great vocabulary they have you know mm-hmm. and uh you know how esoteric they are well here let me just quickly read the rolling stone review and Do you know uh, who it was by the way i don't know okay. I, well i didn't write it down um but here's what he said 
Toto sings love songs of little distinction or consequence, offering greeting card verse and oral bouquets to fantasy lovers <laughs> via the medium of cutting-edge studio technology and their own well-honed session man chops. The group's cleverly titled new album, Toto 4, <laughs> follows the formula with a T, mixing sodden ballads taken at tiptoeing rhino tempos with booming, echoey rock songs. Wow. <laughs> Toto builds its AOR heroics upon a steady-as-a-metronome rhythm section and a vaguely gospel-tinged piano, which serve as a backdrop for David Page and Steve Percaro's Technicolor synthesizer wonderment. <laughs> Guitarist Steve Lukather gets a fat sound with lots of sustain, sending his fingers into overdrive on the solos. And singer Bobby Kimball scales the upper registers in an L.A. approximation of blue-eyed soul. Ooh, okay. Finally, the band of pros doesn't miss a trick. Since Asia, talking about the band Asia, has lately become the platinum non de plume of four British art rock superstars, Toto has asserted its territorial imperative with a tune called Africa, a ringer for the UK's the UK group's FM smash, Heat of the Moment. So they think Africa sounds like Heat of the Moment. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, there's even a touch of Asia on total four in the artificially malleted xylophone sounds that pop up on occasion. Typical of an album that feels about as real as Velveeta orange polyester leisure suits. <laughs> God. <laughs> well. So I think we've, we've said all there is. Yeah. There's some in there that I will agree with. Not much. The Velveeta? No. Well, they talk about the prowess of their playing and all that stuff. They are complimentary. Yeah, but as though it's regard. a bad thing. They're right. kind of like like a nod that, that you know it's bad that they can play as metronome locked. You know. Right. Well, no. Earlier on, I said the polished production or something. I mean, yeah. they did give it some kudos early on. Well honed are... session man chops. Yes, that is true. Chops is in quotes too, so I think they're uh, being snarky yeah, there well, too. This was uh, 1982 when this review came out. Yep. It. One thing that's interesting is we have the benefit of looking at this record through the prism of history, right. which they did not. Correct. So this is, I think, becomes more influential as time goes on. It did. And at the time, there were elements. And the other thing that I slightly sort of agree with is, to me, this record is a little bit all over the map. And it's not, it's, it's all good, in my opinion. It's not all uh, necessarily Yachty, which we'll right. go get into when we go uh, track by track. Uh, but it's not entirely cohesive for me. And so without being as snarky as that reviewer was, and I wouldn't give it two stars, I'd probably give it 3.75 out of four. Okay. Um, there is some agreement with that, which we'll get into a little bit. But I think uh, that reviewer is not somebody who can recognize some of the genius that we're going to go through today, whether it was because they were doing it in real time and some of the sounds were new. Like Africa sounded totally un unlike anything that had come out at the time. Yeah, and Rosanna really did to me at the, as well. Yeah, and so those two songs, though, to my point, sound nothing like each other. Not at all. And they bookend nope. the record, but mm -hmm. we'll get into that mm -hmm. in a little bit. Um, did you mention the Grammys? Um, album of the year, producer of the year, record of the year for Rosanna. So at least some of the critics were giving it do a claim. Yeah, obviously the, they have the Grammy committee recognized. And some of that is based on you have to reach certain sales plateaus too before you're really recognized there. So the sales kind of force that to happen. You know, when the when the album first comes out, people are, re, like you said, reviewing it on first impulse. What other notes do you have in terms of history and context? Go ahead. I wanted to bring up real quick, though, the engineer who I know is somebody who you really yes, revere. That, that is what I was going to say. Al Schmidt. Yep. Is that the one you're, because there's a couple engineers on the record. Greg, Greg Ladanya 
Yep. Ladanyi is another one. Uh, those two are both synonymous with uh, just great tracking sounds, recording great sounds. You know, not necessarily the mix, but the recording of the original stuff. And those two are two of the best. While it was produced by Toto, at least that's what they say. Yes. This is engineering. Um, really Al- David Page at that point. Yeah, right. Al Schmidt, though, what, didn't he also have engineering responsibilities on Asia, which is the he other did. record? He was that one of the tracking on. engineers on Asia. Yes, he was. So we were just effusive in our praise of the just the recording quality of that the sounds on that record. That was, what, four years prior? 78? Yeah, could that have been that they uh, brought him in for that very reason? I don't know the story. Yep, but uh, so very accomplished yeah. uh, on all fronts. Just from your memory, I'll tell you what co- strikes me as me misremembering something like you just said earlier. I thought Rosanna was the number one hit on this record. I could have sworn that it had like a seven or eight week at number one run at number one. It did not. Um, I kind of felt that too. That was the one that impacted me most. It seemed like Africa was around for longer. But Rosanna was the first release, as I recall. Yep. So, right, that made the impact just because it, in a way, seemed like it came out of nowhere. It was such a unique song, the dynamics of it. And uh, I know we're not getting into the track by track of it yet, but um, yeah, that was kind of my, my, my memory too. When I heard Rosanna, that was the one that really hit me. Yep. And it peaked at number two. It was there for five weeks on Billboard anyway. Um, and, Africa was number one. I think it was their only number one song of all time. Um, at that time or ever? It was the first, so yeah. at that time, in only number one hit, according to the famous uh, Wikipedia website, which is never wrong. Yeah, okay, well then I won't argue it. Well, I'm I'm ready to get into the track by track. Um, Let's do it. Yeah, so just real quick before we do that, though, so do you have a listing of personnel on this? Because... This is sort of like, it's a Yacht Rock album that has the same personnel that you might find on somebody else. I don't have it all written down. Obviously, I know the band members and I know a few of the key people, that the additions. So we've got Jeff Picaro. We've got Steve Lukather. Right. Um, David Hungate was the bass player still. Okay. Bobby Kimball's the lead the vocalist. Higher lead vocalist. David Page. Steve, he yeah. leaves after this record? Bobby Kimball? Bobby Kimball does, yeah. Okay, so David Page is on here. Yeah. Marty Page? Uh, does some orchestration. That's um, in, he's, the, he's David's dad. He does some orchestration, and uh, as well as James Newton Howard does some. Lenny Castro, yeah, definitely. Uh, and Dean Parks. Uh, I don't know about Dean Parks. We know that Jim Pankow was in the horn section from Chicago, along with the, the Jerry Hay and the gang of guys that he normally had around. But uh, Pankow was apparently Chicago was cutting something else in the studio mm-hmm. around at the same time. And so, if this weren't a total record, it could be somebody else, and it would be the same band. Yeah, at the time. Yeah, very much. Right. Yeah. Cool. Well, we started talking about Rosanna because that's the one that I think to I'm you know at the time at 82 I'm 12 years old, but right. so I'm not really a music aficionado yet. But this is one of the first songs I remember sort of taking me by storm and saying, "Wow, there's a lot to this record." And I had knew nothing about music at the time, but I remember the horns blaring. Mm-hmm. I remember the huge vocals. I remember the sweet beat. I remember the guitar solo. But what as you look at it now as a yacht rock aficionado and as a musician, as an accomplished and a studied musician, what jumps off at you about this song first off is obviously the beat the beat is the variation on the purdy shuffle it's jeff's own kind of variation and he plays it unlike anyone else does um that became almost the a grail that a lot of drummers chased after that and it was never really matched you know so it's got a rhythm all its own 
the dynamics of it, you mm-hmm. know, um, you, the verses are down low, and then it goes on even, you know, that pre-chorus where it goes into sort of double time, yep. goes even kind of goes even lower, you know, and then those just rocket power chords and horn riff into the chorus. So the dynamics of this song are just something that is not typical of a rock record. Yeah. Right, exactly. Just real quick, going back to the the Purdy Shuffle or the yeah. Picaro Shuffle. Refresh listeners who may have missed it or didn't hear it, but that was three parts where he was uh, Picaro constructed this kind of rhythm off. What were the three elements of this? Well, he started with the Purdy Shuffle. Okay, he started with with uh, Bernard Purdy's feel, and a lot of that is the 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 in the hi hat, right? And then the way he plays the snare and the ghosting notes on the snare was uh as he says came from uh John Bonham fool in the rain fool in the rain yeah. and and then um he changed up the bass drum beat from what either of those two guys would play to what he called a bo diddly beat and the bo diddly thing is that that southern donk 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 right so he put that bass drum underneath that and when you layer those all up you get the rosanna shuffle yeah um if anyone's interested, too, you sent me a long time ago this video of some radio show, uh, like a morning show or something, that dissected oh, yeah. isolated tracks and dissected the song piece by piece. And it's worth watching and listening. It's really something you just listen to, but yeah. it's on YouTube. And we'll link to it in the show notes. But that just tears everything apart and isolates the drums for a bit, then the keyboards, and then the guitar. The and you really have an appreciation for it. Did you know that supposedly, there's a lot of stories around it, but supposedly... The song is named after Rosanna Arquette. Did yes. you know that whole story? I thought you would confirm that. Is that just still a rumor? Um, it depends on who tells the story. <laughs> <laughs> but um, she hung around the band. She knew them. Um, and the, supposedly the opening line, you have, you know, wake up in the morning when I see your eyes, is a reference to her and her particularly you know, blue eyes that supposedly Peter Gabriel wrote. In your eyes no. about so the eyes were a big thing. Uh, one of the eighty rockers, eighties yes. rockers, and um, but what did, I wrote this down here that uh, David Page finally said that he kind of it was the song wasn't specifically about Rosanna Arquette. It was about like three or four different girls that he sort of knew and kind of a composite of. And then when he heard the name Rosanna from it from Rosanna Arquette being around. That that was a name that had the right rhythm and it, and it just sat yeah. with what he wanted to do. So interesting, yeah. So n- there's no confirmation that anyone dated her, just that she was around. I guess Steve did. Okay. But I don't know there was anything long or serious. It was... Okay. Uh, well, the only other thing I just wanted to point out for me... Well, the harmonies, which we already referenced, but I love the... You know, you've got a low-end harmony in here that's very prominent and pronounced, which is somewhat different than a lot of the harmonies were being arranged at the time. So you got the or is it guy. Yeah. You know? Yep. Um, and then the other thing, it's just the leads. So you get these awesome leads, you get a synth lead that goes into this ripping guitar lead. That kind of became almost a template for them in the sense that they would, uh, their solo section a lot of time, they'd set it up with the keyboard thing and then that gave you the opportunity to take it that one notch higher with Luke who would come in with his guitar solo on the heels of that. And then if you wanted to take it one more notch higher than that, this song goes to 11 because the song's over and then it goes into this coda section. Different rhythm, different key. I don't know if it's a different key, but different. It goes to the minor. Yeah. yeah. So the song's kind of in F, I think, and it goes to D minor or something like that. It's uh, 
And then you've got the groove with the piano solo. Supposedly all of that was riffed on the fly. On the fly, including like the guitar lead over it too. I think, yeah, I think even the idea that they were going to even play anything on the outro, they said just kind of happened. I don't know if Jeff made a nod and said, you know, he's going to kick it back in or what. Somehow they knew and they were all just grooving along. And it's amazing. Yeah. That probably I remember get would get edited out on radio because oh, yeah, for whatever DJs feel like they got to talk if nobody's singing. Yeah, it drives me nuts. Or they fade during the, the repeated chorus, yeah. which drove me crazy. I'm surprised you didn't mention the bass in this song. Oh, yeah, the bass is great, so I, tight. I love the way that the bass brings us in. You got that um, the Rosanna beat going, and be right before the downbeat of one. There's like two little bass notes, boom, bam. You know, it's yep. like he has to speak first, but then he goes into slapping. On the choruses, yep. which is killer. Well, we could probably talk all day about Rosanna, but we shan't. So we move on to one of your favorites then, Yes, right? this was a track I had featured as a buried treasure. Yeah. Because it's not a, it's not Rosanna, it's not Africa. No, and it actually did fairly well on the charts, but I think it was forgotten fairly quickly, too. Well, it's one of those songs that it I... It didn't last didn't... 50 years like these. Right, yeah. And so when I heard it uh, last summer, summer 2020... Uh, I was like, oh, yeah, this song. I recognize it instantly. So it had to have done something. But I don't remember anyone playing it between 1983, say, in 2020. When I went back and really gave a, a listen in order to prepare for this, I noticed something on that song I'd never noticed before. And it's it it's so obvious once you notice it. But from the very beginning, David, um, excuse me, Bobby Kimball, who sings lead on this, is singing the verses in like two or three part harmony the whole time. Yeah. You know, and it's like you don't really notice. It's one of those things that typically, you know, the lead singer goes by himself and then you add harmonies in order to elevate the energy of the song. But he's like tight harmonies from the very beginning in a pretty high register. Yeah. Well, that song just comes out punching in the face because it's got a you know, pretty good beat in that blaring, almost Sanborn sounding saxophone thing that's right from the the get go, which is a guy by the name of John Smith, who I, I don't know anything about. Um, it's a, such a unique name. I, I don't know. Yeah, I, know. <laughs> I think he did sign the Constitution, if I'm yes, um, or the Declaration. I'm not sure which, but uh, still around playing sax and Sanborn sounding to me anyway. Maybe a little yeah, more kinda. shrill. Yep, but sounds awesome. And then my favorite part of this. Well, I can't pick a favorite part because I love that melody in three part harmony. Just yeah. almost the verses are as good as the chorus are as good as the verses. But um, interesting thing that I picked up on was after our conversation when we interviewed Firefall, mm-hmm. we talked to those guys about how Jock like Jock Bartley liked to play little guitar riffs in conversation almost with other instrumentalists in the band, and Steve Lukather does that in this song where there's a, a line of a verse and then he's got a little answer to it and it's so artfully done. It's just it's worth just listening through just for those especially on headphones because it's doubled left and right in some cases they're exact doubles in other times the left and right are playing in harmony with each other so it's really interesting listen in that regard um i like uh i i was caught originally way way back when i first heard this song back in the 80s by the driving piano in it Mm -hmm. because it's almost as though you know page wanted to be a little bit of a rocker too but that became kind of a staple of the page sound that driving piano yep. thing you know the eighth notes is cool the rhythm to the song is not too unlike um hold the line yeah Even though hold the line's more guitar feel. driven yep but it's got that same type of beat now so hold the line i think we both agree is not yeah right Technically Some speaking, people are making me come around to that a little bit because as we've talked about different veins of yacht rock, that there should be a since it's called yacht rock, there ought to be a room for a rock or a harder rocking vein mm-hmm. of that. And so maybe you could 
okay. do that one there. But right. typically, it doesn't feel yachty to me. I'd no. have to be convinced, but I wouldn't. I wouldn't go down kicking and screaming because I absolutely right. love that song. Yeah, this song is it yacht for you? Make believe? Yeah, I think it does. Me too. Yeah. yeah, I won't say that for every song in this record, and perhaps that's a good segue. Yeah, because we talked about this next one, and I think that we both kind of begrudgingly said probably not. But this is one of the most amazing ballads of all time, in my opinion. And that's I Won't Hold You Back. back Yep, so track three, uh, I Won't Hold You Back. See, we've got three songs now, and I think we've got two sounds now. Because I think, uh, to me, Rosanna and, um, and Make Believe, Make Believe kind of they go to, belong they can go on the same together. record. Yeah. This song, to me, sounds more like, a, and I don't know how to put this, but like I wrote down 80s sounding ballad. Well, that's stupid, because it is an 80s. And, and it, it is, is a ballad. ballad. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not like a typical yacht rock ballad to me. It's no, more, it's more of an arena-y thing. Something you might have expected from maybe Ario Speedwagon or yes. something. Or even uh, Air Supply, right? To me, this song sounds like where music was headed. In the mid '80s, and not so much where it came from in the late '70s. And so, to me, and put a pin in that because I feel like this record is sort of has one foot in both boats. It does. And so this, you know, um, doesn't mean I don't like the songs. I love the songs, especially now when I hear it. I think at the time it was on radio so much I grew tired of it, but I hear it now and I'm just blown away by it. I mean. Um I don't always think of Lukather as a vocalist. Mm-hmm. Um, so he wrote but, the song and sang yeah, lead vocal. Yeah, and played the piano. I and guess. played the piano. Um, but he sounds so good on this one. There's an interesting interview I caught that um, David Page and Lukather were being interviewed um, about Toto 4. But when they were talking about this song, it's amazing watching those two, how effusive they are in their praise of one another. And it doesn't feel like it's fake. Or staged for the sake of the interview, but um, David Page says to Luke that you know this is the song that he said shows that you're a music composer. Page hmm. says, you know, I produce records, I make records, I can make good sounding records, but you are a songwriter. Pretty high praise, <laughs> yeah. yeah, coming from David Page. Yeah, I once had yeah. told someone tell me that I was neither. Yes, that's still true. Well, yes, it is. And I'm not a performer. But I wait in this song. It's it's one of those slow burners that I just cannot wait, but the waiting makes it better for it to get to the guitar solo. And the guitar solo isn't a ton of notes, but I got to have people listen to that very first note that Luke plays in his guitar. And it's the exact same note that's in the French horns of the orchestration and then they go off in different directions but when they first hit it sounds like you know one and the same i don't know if it's a happy accident whether one was responding to the other or what but when i hear that i just think it's so cool yes so (laughs) one of my notes says Check out the weepy guitar solo with only a few notes. So I said weepy in that it's got these extended long notes that are almost like... <laughs> Maybe the French horns were making him sad. Maybe. <laughs> but it will sound like a nerd, but going back to what he described as you know composing a song, the emotion expressed in the song is what is being expressed in the guitar solo at the same time. Sort of this yeah. pining, this, this very longing, much, and It's just 
beautiful. That's well said. And it shows, yeah. you know, Steve, he's already shown that he can play a lot of notes. Just yes. two songs prior, right? right? He, so he can do that, but, it, you know, it's a true artist that can say a lot with just a few notes and very well done. You could tell they're not playing to a click either because part of that weepiness also comes from and these out choruses, I think, that you listen and if you try and sort of tap your foot along with, you'll realize that at the end of the chorus when Jeff does these big fills to turn it back around, you can hear the thing dragging down tempo-wise. They retard it a little bit and then boom, they're back to tempo. And then it, you know, it's so cool the way he, the, the tug and the pull that you don't get when you're playing with a click track, right. you know, just that flexibility and it just elevates it even more. Right. So the reviewer was wrong again. It's not always metronome like, so no, not. but intentionally so. In intentionally. Yep. So, all right, you ready to move on to track four? Yes. Track four is called Good For You. It is. Co-written by Bobby Kimball and Lukather. Uh, to me, again, this one's not very yachty to me. And this is the beginning of... Feels more like their first couple albums, a little more... Yeah. Maybe not quite prog, but anthemic something, yeah. Anth- yeah. <laughs> anthemic. Um, I'm laughing at my own note here because yeah. I say it's starting to sound like it could be <laughs> the soundtrack to a montage in Rocky Three. Maybe this is where the, the reviewer heard the, the band Asia in it because it's got that, that brassy synth that answers in the chorus, yeah. which sounds very anthemic and... Uh, I mean, the thing that they did so well, and we probably missed some opportunities on the first couple songs, but um, they always had such strong hooks in their choruses, which is obvious. But they always built in what I like to call these internal hooks. So those guitar answers you were talking about in Mm make-believe, the way that they answer the voice, that becomes an internal hook within the song because you you start to expect to hear it and it bounces off of the lead vocal and, you know, does that. This one has those little brass hooks in the uh, choruses and they they always have these little internal hooks above and beyond just the chorus. Yes. And I was going to ask you... Is that a synth line in there, or is, it sounds like a single French horn or something? I think it's a. It sounds like that. Um, it's kind of a classic brass sound that a lot of synths had back then. It, I I hear it like doubled or maybe even tripled, but I can hear it in different areas of the stereo spectrum. So he's probably, you know, layered it a couple of times. And that's it's just cool interplay, like you're saying. And, it and then you got the great. driving piano again, like we yep. talked about with Paige, yep. You know, driving those choruses too. Yep. Yeah. My favorite part is the end, not because it's ending. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> My favorite part is the ending, and maybe you can play a little bit. But Lukather's work over the fade out is oh. just killer. So if you could try to not fade it out, but uh, but listen to this. <laughs> Everybody um, really contributes in that song. Every every voice gets a chance to be heard, so to speak, in that tune. Um, despite it not being a hit, it's an opportunity for everybody to kind of get a little piece of the action. Which then brings us to the final track of Side One, as it was back in the day. This is an interesting one, as yeah. I learned more about it. It's called It's a Feeling. It's written by Steve Beccaro. This one is kind of a moody song. I have this uh, vision of like a, a rainy cityscape, uh, nighttime, um, you know, a few cars on the street, people walking. It just has this almost like um, like a scene from a spy novel kind of going, kind of mood, you know? Yeah. Well, I, to me, it sounds like absolutely nothing else on this record. It, no, it doesn't. It feels yeah. like it was written for a different reason, to your point. like Steve said that um, in an interview with him, he said, I like to write a song where when you hear it, it has a sound or an atmosphere that takes you someplace. And certainly that's here. He sings lead on this one, too, which he doesn't sing lead very often. 
But um, it's interesting that there's no the first verse and the second verse are the exact same lyrics, and uh, mm. supposedly the lyric that we're hearing or the vocal that we're hearing is sort of was his placeholder vocal. He always intended to go back and write a second verse and never did. The song was mixed. It was put on the record and like, oh, all right, I guess it goes. <laughs> <laughs> well, it also features, and as did uh, track three, which was the I Won't Hold You Back. It features the Martin Ford Orchestra. Do you, are you, do you know them? No. Much? I wasn't familiar at all with them, but you know, I looked into who they were a little bit. Very accomplished. Martin Ford apparently was a French horn player, going back to that. I wonder if they connected to James Newton Howard. I wonder if he used them. Um, I am looking. Let's see. Um, he has he had his own orchestra. He's from England, and his orchestra debuted at the Royal Albert Hall. But he's played with the likes of, or for the likes of, Elton John, uh, Brian Ferry, Ginger Baker, Johnny Nash. Uh, so a little bit all over the place, and I'm not referencing. Hmm, okay. Well, but, I do know that they recorded the orchestra at Abbey Road, so that would uh, that yeah, makes that sense. Follows. Yep. But so that was an interesting new name that popped up. Going yeah. back to your your you know continuing education aspect of what we're doing. Mm-hmm. But, well, uh, and it also had Lenny C- uh, Castro on percussion on that. Uh, he was certainly a close, um, almost extra member of the band. Yeah, he, he wasn't technically in the band, but he was very very closely involved with them. It's also you know to remind our younger listeners something that we mentioned in the Asia record. Uh, deep dive is that there was a lot of thought given to where songs were put on the record. Yes. Right. What place is including relative to where they finish, maybe a side a or start a side B. So they took this song and it felt like, and I agree that it feels like it belongs at the end of a side a type of thing. So perfectly placed. And not just for mood reasons. Sometimes it's placed there for the mood because it gives you that intermission back in the day when you either had to flip the cassette or the record. So you had this built in intermission, but also there were technical reasons why that had to happen in in terms of pressing a vinyl that the closer you get to the middle the less dynamic your song could typically be yeah. because the energy closer to the center and so that's why you find that sides will end with a mellower track a ballad or whatever so. that's very interesting well especially that's foreshadowing that's going to come up later but, okay good. um so let's get past intermission you flip it over you take it out of the cassette deck yeah <laughs> put it back you, in you gotta rewind you gotta you rewind to <laughs> yeah, it didn't line up god dang yeah. it that was uh, so side two opens with uh, like this driving guitar rocker, Afraid of Love. Sounds like maybe this was a carryover from the previous record, because the previous record, Turn Back, was a little more of a rockin' record, a little more Lukather heavy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know that to be the case, but this sounds like it is definitely a killer uh, guitar riff. Do you notice, though, that they... Um, at the end of the verse, each line of the verse, they drop two counts. No. It's like that. Yeah, the, the count is a set of eight and then a set of six. So it's like you got the verse, and then the guitar does its little answer riff, and that's only yep. six counts. So it's kind of cool. I usually pick up on stuff like that because I love those little nuances. There's another one coming up. The next song? Uh, I don't know. I'm gonna turn the page. I haven't gotten there yet. Yeah. No, it's not the next song. Okay. It's the one after that. Oh, okay. <laughs> Interesting, because these yeah. three songs to me all felt like a set, and it also felt like a a throwback, like you said, or a, to me, not knowing my Toto lore right. as well as you do, it, it felt like a forecast to kind of how some uh, mainstream rock was going. 
they've always had some prog type of aspects to what they do. Mm-hmm. Certainly on the first couple records, and then it shows up again later on. Um, but the, like the instrumental bridge in this song, and there's another one later. Another in afraid you know, of love or the next song. In, in afraid of love, yeah, yeah. It, it has that instrumental bridge that sounds very much like a a prog rock kind of thing, and that's a throwback to probably their first couple albums, like I said. Well, and I mentioned, I had that same note for the next song, which is Lovers of the Night, and then just so we know what songs we're talking about is the three-song set. The one after that's called We Made It. To me, those all sound like that similar sounding, kind of, maybe you call it prog or whatever. Yeah, since uh, we're sort of bundling those together, Lovers of the Night's the other one that has that real epic, cinematic sort of instrumental bridge. Yeah, so, so it, I is, said it, it could does be the, tie together. This could be the theme to a movie montage starring uh, Ralph Macchio, was the note I <laughs> <laughs> Why Ralph Macchio? Well, because he's got to learn how to wax on, wax off, etc. Too much Cobra Kai for you. Yes. Luke rips a solo in Lovers of the Night that is just... The outro solo? Yes. Oh, my gosh, yeah. He wails it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that has another super strong hook on the uh, the chorus as well, man. Very much the distinctive Bobby Kimball high chorus on that one. And that's got those uh, like synth slides after this. Lovers in the night. They got that kind of thing. So again, building in these little hooks, even just that identifier of that descending synth. Well, since we are maybe dressing these as a set, the third in the set introduces a common, at least I hear it more in this song than any other, but it seemed like it was an intentional uh, incorporation of the pinch harmonics. That oh yeah, Lukather does right. on the song. Yes, um, seems to be like a recurring feature, not just a happy accident. That you talking about the thing that takes us into the chorus, the bass and the guitar thing together, and he's kind of yeah, where you get that high pitched harmonic, and I think the guitar player in my old band used to call it pinch harmonics. So yeah, I don't even know if I know what I'm that talking is, about. That's correct. Yeah, uh, yeah. So since I know what I'm talking about, pinch harmonics. Yes. Yeah. Um, fantastic guitar work throughout this song. Another rocker, and again, these three to me are. Yeah, has that Page driving piano intro. And this is the one where that that intro, the whole instrumental section of the intro, that's done in seven. So I'm surprised you didn't catch that. Well, I can't count higher than six, so. You said you couldn't count. Uh, Oh, yeah, that's right. Um, But so let's talk about this chunk as a whole because this is emblematic of a yacht rocker's issue with Toto. It's hard to pin them down as a yacht rock band. Even though we put them on the Mount Rushmore, I just went back and listened to that episode this week, right. and we struggled with, do they belong on Mount Rushmore as Toto or is just a session cats? And we ultimately both put them on as Toto, but this is the problem, is they're not entirely yachty all the time. I don't think I could give you a large list of songs that I would say these are absolutely yacht songs. Right. I Toto, could, you mean? Yeah, yeah exactly. Right. I could give you a handful, maybe. Mm-hmm. But we can say that about... Ambrosia. We can say that about Player, and we, you know we don't mm-hmm. talk about them necessarily. Like people, when when people bring up yacht rock, they immediately point to Steely Dan, Toto. But the I don't know. It's I feel like I'm knocking a band that I love because they're one of my favorite bands of all time. And so it's not a knock. It's just no. it's for exactly what you said. They're going into different areas. We know that they played on seemingly every yacht rock record ever made, <laughs> right? But that doesn't mean that the songs with the Toto emblem on the front are highly yachty and for the most part I don't think they are but it's still worthy of analyzing this album because of maybe the way it influenced so many right you know? exactly and I don't think Lukather I think he I'm just guessing you read his book you read the mm-hmm. Jeff McCarroll book too but um, 
he, he's so versatile. So that is one thing is that you can't pin him down into one sound because, and I'm guessing is he likes to do all that dicka, 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 and add that funky rhythm to songs. But he also loves just straight out guitar rock four four. Let's just do it. Mm-hmm. That's how he made his money back then. So, but now I don't think he does as much of that. I don't know if it's because it's not so much you know part of the musical culture today, or it's just he said, "Oh, I did that at the time to make my money, and now I'm going to play with the music I want." Because a lot of the stuff he plays now, like you said, is a lot harder rock and a lot bluesier. Mm-hmm. You know. Yep. But you know he's also aged, so yeah. you know we all change over time. Well, can we move on to the next track then? Because yeah. this represents yet another foray, foray into yet another sound for this record. It to me, the, because of the three songs that precede it, this felt like a sudden left turn, brand new sound. This is something I think our friend John O'Grady at Milwaukee Yacht Rock would love this area of Toto because it's to me it's more R and B, wouldn't you say? Yeah, this I my, one of my notes said this one is the most decidedly yacht of all of them right. because of the groove and the chords. They're very thick, jazzy kind of R and B chords. In another um, new guitar style from Lukather, he's playing more of a yeah. R and B funky rhythm. I wondered about the bass on this one. Did you make any notes about bass on this one? I said they began dabbling with synth bass. Okay, I couldn't tell whether I thought that was synth bass or whether it was like a highly processed fretless kind of thing going on because they don't credit anybody as quote playing synth bass on that song interesting but do they credit somebody playing synthesizer and do they also credit someone playing bass yeah so yeah so i I didn't have a note on this one because i couldn't find personnel on that particular song yeah i couldn't tell something definitive and it just as i listened to it i thought hmm first i was gonna really try to peg you down because we've had so many discussions about synth bass. Yes. And I was going to put this one in front of you and say, there it is, synth bass. But then I don't, now I'm not so sure that it is. So <laughs> Yeah, good. I don't know. Excellent. Well, this one, to my surprise, was released as a single. Do you recall that? Because it peaked not a at bit. number 73 on the Billboard. Wow, 73. No, not a bit. I don't remember it being released at all. It's a nice um, solo in this one from Steve. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that's a classic, going back to that synth brass sound that was... Very much a staple in all analog synths back then. Yep. yep. But um, my guess is that, uh, you know, there were probably keyboards that you could uh, bring it up on a preset back then, you know. But knowing uh, what I know about Steve, he probably had the big synthesizer with all the patch cables that was like the size of the wall of your house. And he probably spent about two weeks to get that sound right. <laughs> right. <laughs> Apparently that became a source of frustration among the band that he would take weeks to put a solo section together. And so they kind of gradually moved away from offering him solo Yes, that's one way to fix it. Hence, he quit the band. You know, one thing about this song that you and I, I think, have talked a lot, quote-unquote, off-air, I don't know if we've ever mentioned it um, actually while we're recording the podcast, and that is a trick of these yacht rockers, especially Picaro and some of the bassists that we like, is they hold their best nifty tricks until the fade-out even. Mm -hmm. Certainly near the end of the song, but sometimes they're sneaking stuff in right before... Your fade to black, say. And check out the 16th notes that Picaro's playing in the drum fill right near the very, very, very end of this fade. Wow. It's not like they always knew when it was going to be faded, though, either. That's true. But But, but there was the conscious decision, though, to say, I'm going to save this for effect later, as opposed to just fill the entire song like John Bonham might or, you know, just like, I'm going to be tasty and then I'm going to bring my chops out, but yeah. only at the end. Well, when Russ and I were making Page 99 record, we always joked about, oh, we got to have a little nugget for the end. Always got to have a nugget for the fade out. Yeah. You know? And sometimes bass players would be, you know, doing traditional bass playing, and then at the end, they'll start popping. Bam. <laughs> yeah. One. Like one note, like in, um, 
I keep forgetting. Yeah, it's like he says one pop for right near the end. Yeah, and I think uh, "Rise" by Herbert Alpert or Herb Alpert does the same thing. But you're right. <laughs> yeah, but that's just kind of a nice little tasty little add-on that you get. Yeah, that's what makes you go back and listen time and time again because you don't catch all of that the first time, and it's those details that make you come back. Yes. Well, this brings us to the records, probably magnum opus. Oh yeah, um, that's uh, Latin for I don't know what for big opus. last song. Yeah. Big Opus. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, yeah, this was the song that uh, Luke A didn't want on the record, and B said would never be a hit. So he says, "So see what I know about you know, picking hits." He said, "If I pick a song that's going to be a hit, there's sure to tank." Well, I wonder if this he you know lobbied to have this at the tail end of the record. So going back, this finishes the record. Side B, side two of the record becomes their biggest hit, their only number one song. If Wikipedia is to believed, and why not? Um, but. We had an interesting story when we did How It's Made, and I don't know if we would, I can revisit it in full, but interesting how this drum loop uh, got recorded. Um, did you look into that anymore or in any greater detail? Yeah, I just know that it was um, Jeff and uh, Lenny Castro. So going back to Lenny right. Castro, that they, uh, I think at first Jeff laid down just like some um, like basic, uh, like, kick rim click and then lenny castro was on cowbell and they went and they found one bar of that that they decided to loop well yeah before you get to that real quick because they went into the room without a metronome no click no tape no nothing and jammed that beat for five minutes okay yeah no roadmap just keep doing it right until they went back then and found okay that's the our favorite bar of this whole thing that one's got all the mojo so then they would mark that on the tape they put like a big white mark on the tape so that they could, as the tape was spinning around, they could see when it was coming and know, okay, this is the bar that we're going to be recording into. Um, but they went back then and layered other percussion on top of it and ultimately mixed that down. That became the, quote, loop, the tape loop. Once they had the loop figured out and recorded, they laid that down and um, recorded that back onto the 24-track tape for like, I think they said six minutes. And so they had a six-minute sort of palette to work against. Then Jeff Percaro and David Page were the only ones at the studio at the time, went back in and played the drums with the for the choruses, the drum fills and into the choruses, and then all the piano. All of that went down in one take. That's amazing. So they go, all right, let's go in and cut all the other, you know, and then they added other parts after that. So this is one that was piecemealed together, which a lot of the others they would play as a band. Yeah. Well, what they saved in uh, take time there, they made up for because I think Page, David Page joked that he said for that drum bit, he said they would have taken two and a half minutes to program on a Lin, on a Lin drum, but instead it took us two and a half hours to do it the hard way. It would never would have sounded like that on no, a Lin. No, it would never. No. It, it is kind of funny. But to me, that joke underscores kind of what their commitment to the art. That's which true. Is like you know, we could have done this the easy way. There's a lot of people that would have done it that way, right? Especially at the time, at the time. when digitization was becoming in vogue, and yeah, and considered cool yeah, sounding. You exactly. Know? But it, the whole song would have had a different feel. To your point, yeah. For yeah. being the last track on the album, I love how it all sort of disassembles at the end. All the parts start dropping out mm-hmm. and then gradually you're just left with that tape loop and the long fade to the end. Very similar to our commentary at the end of Asia where mm-hmm. it just seems like it has the super long fade off to the sunset. And so yes. it does, it sits perfectly at the end of a record as yeah. it turns out. 
What's interesting about this song relative to Yacht Rock is I think when you're first getting exposed to discovering what Yacht Rock is, the song is perfectly emblematic because it's like, oh, I remember the song. And it brings back all the nostalgia from where you were in 1982. It happens to be a great song. The more you listen to it, the more you're like, oh, my God, this is great musicianship. And so going back to our five stages, this fits well there. As I listen to it now, I don't find it Yacht Rocky at all by the strict definition of what Yacht Rock is. I don't think I do either. Mm-hmm. Anytime it comes up on my list, it doesn't feel like it fits. Um, I'm not sure I can even tell you why. I think it goes back to the sound that they came up with with that drum loop or the drum part just feels very, uh, well, it feels African in nature. Well, I was going to say, maybe it's the Trojan horse in reverse. Is yeah. it knowing the songs about Africa, it doesn't give you the imagery of what we think of with Yacht Rock, too. Right. Yep, and you hear that kind of in the beat that it feels yeah. kind of from that continent. So, yeah. uh, but it's, it's no question in my mind anyway that it's a masterpiece. It's one sure. of the great songs of the '80s, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's the record. Anything else before we move on to the lightning round? Commercial break. Commercial break. It is. Well, we are back without a commercial. We did take a break. We are ready for the lightning round. I yeah, have a uh, theme-inspired lightning round. Do you? Mine's loosely based. Okay. Who first on uh, our first component of the lightning round is, is it yacht or is it not? I am going to go first on this one. And I have to uh, say I have finally, finally come around. And um, our friend from uh, Yacht Rock Miami, Alex G, will be happy to hear this because he and I talked about uh, whether this artist belongs on the boat. And I said, no can do. And he uh, he he was giving me the business about it. So I went back and I studied. And I have found one... Holland Oates track that I am willing to call Yacht. Hmm. And I would like to get your opinion on how yachty you think this song is. Okay. And uh, this is from 1979, and it's Wait For Me. Okay, so first of all, I absolutely adore this song. I somehow discovered it in the very late 80s, put it on a mixtape to my girlfriend who left, later came back and became my wife. But that's irrelevant. At the time, the song- It's relevant now. You know, it is relevant. Yeah. (laughs) She did end up waiting for me. Uh, Ooh, nice. Beautiful song. It is on my Yacht Rock playlist only because it has to be because I love the song so much. What about it, though, made you come around to the fact that it's Yachty? Um... I feel like the 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 chords and the the rhythm of it feel yachty to me. Um, the drum sounds we're getting into that time of the eighties where they started adding a lot of that harsher gated reverb to stuff. So that's the one thing that kind of tugs me away. But I will give you a note on personnel on this one, which I did not know. I didn't know that the album was produced by David Foster. Okay, there, I boom. did not know that. Uh, also credited on the album, though I don't have a uh, track by track. But on the album, Steve Percaro. Jay Graydon, Jerry Murata, who is the younger brother of Rick Murata. Yeah. So it makes you wonder if they would uh, you know, fight over the drum kit when they were kids. But <laughs> Rick Murata, of course, famously from uh, played with Steely Dan. Yes. But so it did have personnel, yep. um, which isn't a deciding factor for me. It's more of an indicator of why did I think this one? Well, then I go back and see that and go, oh, well, maybe that's why. Hmm. Interesting. I so yes per- or no? Oh, yes. It's a definite yacht for me. Okay. It yep. is for me, too. So. I don't have the objections you do about uh, them being from Philly, so just 
to me, and again, not their whole catalog, only a small slice of which this was one. Well, it's not because they're from Philly. It's just I don't hear a West Coast influence as much, but I do in this one. Gotcha. And while well, they brought in West Coast cats to get yeah, us there. There you so, go. Yeah, there, there you, go. you go. So what do you got? Well, I am going to put you on the spot. This could get ugly. Okay. Um, I'm going to put you on the spot. Oh, boy. So page 99, your alter ego is a band. Yeah. It is a Yacht Rock-inspired band, if For not sure. a full-out Yacht Rock band. Your first release was a cover of a Toto song. Yeah. And um, that was out in the summer of 2020. The full album is out when now? February 19th? February 19th. People can already go listen to the song and judge for themselves, your cover. But I'm talking about the original that Toto did. The song is called Leah. think it is um i think it's a little bit later i think it was like 1986 i'm going from top of my head um from the fahrenheit album i know that yep um no i don't think it is it's a it's a nice smooth little understated ballad another steve percaro tune but no i don't think it's yeah what about you did you think so no i no, and that doesn't mean anything negative about the song. I love the song, so it was just interesting because I know yeah. you're, you know, part of page ninety nine is in specific reference to Yacht Rock pages yes. ninety nine, um, and you chose that song as your very first release, and it ended up getting back to Steve Picaro, and he actually exchanged emails with the, the intermediary. He, he said he, loved he did. It, he sent so. us a great email, um, but the reason we did that song is because. Uh, Russ said that's his all-time favorite song to sing along with. And oh. so he said, "Let's can we cover this one? And I said, absolutely. Cool. All right, so I'm going to hit you then with a buried treasure. All right. And here's why this one's total specific, because the artist is Bill LeBounty from the Bill LeBounty album, which is just a masterpiece. I sound like a broken record. But the right. personnel on this particular song, you got Dean Parks on acoustic guitar, Jeff Picaro on drums, Chuck Rainey on bass, which is not Toto necessarily, uh, Greg Gaines on the E-Roads, but you got uh, Steve Lukather on guitar. The harmonies I thought were interesting on this one um, because it includes Patty Austin and Stephen mm-hmm. Bishop. Mm. Do you know what song this is yet? No. Okay. Percussion, Lenny Castro. Uh, there you go, Lenny Castro again. Yep. And the song is somewhat of a buried treasure on an album that I believe is a buried treasure. Yeah. Um, but so I think Yacht Rock aficionados will know the hits, but they might not know this one, which is called Nobody's Fool. I'm nobody's fool. But what a temptation. Yeah, anything off that album is a treasure. It really yes, is. It really is. Top to bottom. I know. I think that we that album is going to require deeper conversation later. But if this was a yacht or not question, every you, as soon as you said Bill LeBounty from 1982, I would have said yacht. You know, I don't need to know. The whole album is, by it the is. way, is very yachty. It is. It's got a consistent sound to That's it. So unlike call. the album that we dove deep into today, that one's got one consistent sound with different cats playing on different songs, different recording sessions, mm-hmm. and the whole thing fo- sounds to me. I've said to this before. It sounds like it was recorded in the same six hour segment because it just sticks together so well. And that's certainly one of the deeper cuts on there. So it yeah. definitely qualifies as a full-on buried treasure. Yep. My buried treasure um, is sort of loosely connected to Toto as well because uh, Lukather and Jeff Picard play on this album. It's a Jay Graydon production. And um, there might be issue whether this one is buried, buried. But, you know, again, Pages is not exactly a household name. No. Others outside of this circle. 
And this is not their biggest hit, but maybe their next level, their tier two hit. And this is You Need a Hero. Pages is a great example of the Yacht Rock aficionados love Pages. The newcomers in stage one or two are like, what? Yeah, that, that used to be me. Nary, uh, you have to but, tell them that they became Mr. Mister, and then they're willing to at least listen. Oh, okay, I'll give that a listen. Right, but it doesn't sound anything like Mr. Mister. No, not at no. all. But, um, you know, two years ago, I had no idea what it was. and now I kind of didn't either. Yeah. So talk about Buried Treasure, but now they're like a household name in this household anyway. But great tune. Yeah. Great tune. So good. Off the map. Off the map. What you got for off the map? Off the map. This one, um, it's off the map because it's from 2008. And uh, we were recently um, fortunate enough to have an interview with State Cows, right? Yep. And Daniel Anderson uh, told us about an album that he did as a solo project back in 2008 about his sort of just moving to L.A. and what his uh, reactions were, what his impressions were. And I love this song. And this is fully Yachty in the most Donald Fagan esque sense. And this is uh, called Glamorous Hollywood. That is a fantastic tune. Off the map? Well, because of 2008. Yep. I guess. Yep. I just was so eager to use it that I wanted to get it in there. Right. Yeah. Well, it's a great tune. Very good tune. Um, it's so on the map that it shouldn't be off the map. I almost. know. But I had to get it in there somewhere. Uh, here, well, here, perfect example. Okay. I have a song that I wasn't sure if what I should What a fool put believes. <laughs> no, yeah. Have you heard of it? It's a buried treasure. This song, I wasn't sure. Do I put it as yacht or not? Do I... Enter it as a buried treasure, or is it off the map? <laughs> yeah, we've had a few of those, <laughs> okay. which doesn't make sense unless you're in our heads. We've talked about the song before. So this is from 1981. This is from an artist, Sarah Vaughn. Mm-hmm. Sarah Vaughn is a standard jazz vocalist from like the like cool 40s, jazz era. Yeah. Right. Big band sort of singer. The fact that she was still recording in 1981 seems out of error to me, but I just that I might know. just be my perception. But she recorded an album with the Jazz Messengers in large part. It was compila- uh, artist compilation. Okay. Okay. And this song, uh, she did a cover of the Beatles' Fool on the Hill, mm. which is, okay, that's why it seems off the map. Yeah. Um, as well as being Sarah Vaughn. But it's Toto specific because the producers were David Page and Marty Page. Well. Um, Davis Hungate, not David Hungate. Davis. Is, appears on this. Mm. Uh, as well as, so we have Steve Picaro on synth. Uh, Lee Rittenauer, Dean Parks, Louis Shelton, wow. Jeff Picaro on percussions slash drums. Uh, we've got Joe Picaro. So yeah, they really. That's the dad. Yeah, they picked a peck Does of it sound Picaros there. Um, does it sound yachty? Have a listen. Work is phenomenal, well, Mr. Davis Hungate. <laughs> Davis, they, they probably couldn't get David. So. I know. Well, yeah, like I said, they picked a pack of pickled Picaros because there's four of them on there. <laughs> that is a masterpiece. I don't. And yeah. Sarah Vaughn sings it so beautifully. That's just amazing. 
Yeah, and it's such a great song. The chords are so sophisticated. It makes you realize in that setting how sophisticated the chords of that song really are. Yeah, so you, right, you have the uh, uh, Lennon and McCartney co- yeah. complexity of the vocals, or I'm sorry, of the chords, as you mentioned. Yeah. And it just fits so well over a halftime shuffle groove. It does, yeah. yeah. Wow. Cool. Well, that is today's episode. So deep dive on Toto 4. Total specific lightning round. Glad to get that one off my chest. That yeah. one, I've been living with that one for uh, almost 40 years. That's right. Well, and if anyone else has a record that they would like us to focus on, yeah. hit us up on Facebook or go to yachtrockpodcast.com and you can find our email uh, right there and send us a request. So, Captain John, anything else as we uh, disembark here? Uh, ahoy polloi. Ahoy polloi.